Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. Hey, welcome to Politico Tech. We made it to Friday, September 29th. I'm your host, Stephen Overly. Politico's AI and Tech Summit took place earlier this week. And despite the many fascinating conversations, we really didn't resolve any of the obstacles to regulating artificial intelligence. As I talked to attendees, I heard just how many obstacles there are. Political intransigence. The D's and the R's working together. <laughs> is, that, is that an acceptable answer? Or is that a cop-out? I think the biggest hurdle in the U.S. right now is that there are so many other priorities in Congress. Right now we're staring down a government shutdown, and I think if that's averted, pretty soon here people are going to start thinking towards the election, and then we're just really going to lose steam. A desire to do everything at once. Uh, we need to think very smartly about what policy should look like, and we shouldn't be afraid to pursue a piecemeal approach. But I also heard how high the stakes are. Take our audience poll as an example. When asked what AI issues Washington must prioritize, the top two answers were protecting humanity from existential threats and protecting Americans from discrimination and privacy risks. And with AI being the focus in every room, including our summit, I also had to know, what's the issue that's not getting enough attention right now? The emerging technologies in the defense space, which is where I work, like that coordination with the Pentagon to get our best and brightest engaged in how to make smart weapons for our country. I think we could dedicate a lot more time and energy and resources toward um, EVs and AVs. The demise of Twitter and where all of the reporters are going to, and the media people of the world are going to go when that platform finally dies or is behind a paywall. I don't think that there is any replacement for it. Um, and I don't know that anyone is necessarily looking to build that. And I think it will change the way that a lot of listeners here do their jobs. I think it's education. The way in which technology can actually help us to achieve goals in the educational environment and how we need to do that responsibly. My longest conversation at the summit, though, was the one I had on stage. On today's Politico Tech, you'll hear my interview with Ann Neuberger, one of President Biden's top advisors on all things cybersecurity and AI. Today, we're doing actually a very special live recording of Politico Tech with Ann Neuberger who is a deputy assistant to the president and deputy national security advisor for cyber and emerging tech. Congrats. Correct. Okay. A long but very important title. Um, and you know, all the, all the technologies we're talking about here today, cybersecurity, microchips, AI, have major national security implications. Uh, I've been a longtime tech reporter, and I, I really think we're our national conversations around technology are sort of more you know, at the center of our conversations around national security and economic security, probably than they've ever been before. You sit at the intersection of all of these issues uh, at the, on the National Security Council. So I want to start with a topic I think we're all curious about here, which is the forthcoming executive order on artificial intelligence that the White House is working on. You know, I know you, or I've, I've seen you describe that in the past as incredibly comprehensive. What does that look like exactly? What can we expect from that? Absolutely. So first, it's great to be with, it's great to be with you today. Thanks so much for having me, Stephen. Absolutely. Um, I think taking a step back for a moment, when you look at AI, you know, the president convened a first group of AI executives 
and a group of them released a set of voluntary commitments on trust and safety, as well as transparency on the data that models are trained on, watermarking, and you saw a second set of executives sign on to additional voluntary commitments, and we're now at 15. So that's the first piece of work, to say there's work to be done here both in the private sector, in government, and then internationally. The second set is this um, executive order, which really, because AI is such a cross-cutting issue, it crosses the economy, jobs, how to ensure that it doesn't, it doesn't increase bias, national security aspects. That is the second set of work, and we view that as a bridge to the regulatory work that Senator Schumer, Leader Schumer, is leading on the Hill right now, and you see the convenings that he's doing as well. So that's, that reads well into my next question, which is obviously an executive order has to operate within the bounds of existing exactly. laws. Um, so how far are you able to go before Congress does any sort of AI regulation? So the president has talked a lot about his vision, which is managing for the peril that artificial intelligence potentially brings, as well as really gleaning the promise for our economy, for our society, and various areas of social good. Education is a wonderful example where we're already seeing customized education um, in that area. So the president's focus has been within the bounds, as you put it so well, Stephen, of current law. Let's do everything we can to manage for those risks. For example, think about high-risk deployments of AI. How do we ensure we think through that and put in place appropriate trust and safety in a thoughtful way? As well as how do we ensure we think about the promise of AI from areas like how do we use it to generate more secure code? How do we use it to help you know, potentially spread access to medical care in areas of the country where that may not be the case. So those are the kinds of areas the president's asked us to ensure we look at. Now, as you noted, within the bounds of current law, we see how far that goes, and we're in close conversations with the Hill, as Leader Schumer does his listening sessions as well, um, to ensure that as we come up upon areas that we think further regulation may be needed, we're having that direct and transparent conversation. And so it sounds like with this executive order, you might look at both the, the upsides and the downsides of, of AI or the risks of AI. Is that, is that right? That's the goal. You know, nothing is final, of course, until the president sees it and reviews it. He's remained actively engaged in this topic. In fact, I think he's actually in San Francisco today for meeting with his Council of Science advisors and further discussions. He's convened groups to listen and hear um, both on potential promise. The vice president has convened leaders of civil society to hear concerns about how AI could potentially promote bias or areas that it could address bias um, as well. So certainly has put a great focus of it, and that's the reason really the president's chief of staff, because it's such a whole of society issue, has been directly engaged and leading on this as well. Well, it's an, you know, and I think an interesting question that a lot of folks are grappling with around AI, which is how far does existing law go? To what extent do we need new laws? And obviously that may depend on the use cases for artificial intelligence, how it's actually applied. I'm curious, as you're in the process of doing this work on the executive order, have you been surprised by how far you are able to go? Have you been frustrated by the limitations within existing law? How, how has that looked and played out for you? So I really want to emphasize first the role of the companies themselves, right, in terms of recognizing that they have an obligation to glean the trust and safety of American consumers of users regarding how models are trained. You know, what data are they trained on? Transparency on that data. You know, we have an old tech principle of garbage in, garbage out very likely the same. 
So that kind of transparency. Similarly, what kind of testing is done before models are released? There's so much we don't know about the technology. So red teaming, red teaming with experts in given areas, right? So a model potentially that's focused on you know, loans being really done with individuals who have expertise in that area. So that's the second area. And then finally, you know, how, what is the cybersecurity and protection of AI? AI is fundamentally software. We've learned a lot um, over the years with regard to cybersecurity, protecting um, against prompt injection and other related areas. So those are really obligations on the companies. And I think we've seen commitments the companies have made, the voluntary commitments as well as partnerships they've started to build in that area. And certainly from a US government perspective, we've stood up efforts to ensure we're sharing threat information, we're sharing best practices, because we're all invested in that success. From the perspective you asked about, which is how do we ensure within current law we're heeding that, that obligation and the president's called for with regard to managing for the risks. There's pieces with regard to how do we ensure we bring in talent into government? How do we ensure that regulators have an understanding, can tap into knowledge bases of AI in government to think about where are current trust and safety rules, for example, for in critical infrastructure? What additional risks might AI bring? And then what may be needed to manage that. So those are some of the things we're thinking through um, in, in approaching this. And it's really focused on ensuring that consumers and others can feel a level of confidence in the trust and safety within these models. Right. Well, one more, one more EO question, and maybe you can give us some, some insight on this question I think a lot of folks have as well, which is the timeline for when we might see it. You know, we've heard the fall talked about, we've heard that you know, it's being expedited approach rapidly. Can you give us any insight into when we might expect to, to see the executive order? One principle we've learned now from working on a number of executive orders is one, one doesn't comment. We know that it's a priority for the administration, as the president has talked about, and you know, fall sounds like as good a time as any. Right, but, uh, hard, to, hard to pin it down. We'll be right back. The Biden administration is moving forward with a slew of new regulations that put products like semiconductors, electric vehicles, modern healthcare technology, and clean energy at risk. Chemistry is essential to our modern lives, creating products to help foster a more sustainable and competitive future. The Biden administration must change its course and work with manufacturers on science-based policies that protect American innovation. Learn more at chemistrycreates.org. Well, let's talk about, I know you recently returned from Europe, and so obviously there's a, a strong global dimension to AI, um, and you were there discussing this new administrative agreement that the, the EU and the US launched earlier this year. You, and and I, I should say the, the goal around that is really to look at some of the ways AI can be used positively to address exactly. climate change, healthcare access, things like that. How, how are those conversations going with the EU uh, on, the, on that? It's a really great question because we talk about the potential promise for AI in the areas of public good, areas that from a societal perspective, we think that bringing together data and compute and, um, and models and building models can help. And particularly when we look at the European Union, 
that often approaches tech in a regulatory way, we felt that a partnership, we could learn from the way the EU thinks about regulation. Perhaps the EU could learn from the way in the United States we think about innovation as a source of, as a source of public good, as a source of the way we compete, we grow our economy, and we offer opportunity to our citizens. So we, back in September, before ChatGPT um, was, people were thinking about gender AI world, models in that world. way. Um, we met with the EU and said, what could we do together in the space? And we identified five areas of public good where it seemed AI had just tremendous promise, and it really excited us to think about that. And you mentioned a couple of them. So the five areas were health, obvious reasons, um, particularly in the area of computer imaging, identifying cancer potentially more quickly, um, areas identifying the markers for cardiac issues earlier, the second, electric grid optimization. Clear impact on climate. Our electric grids are key sources um, of, of concern with regard to um, impacts on climate. How do you build digital twins? And then can we identify, particularly as we try to build out our EV infrastructure in the US, okay. you know, where should we put that infrastructure for optimal use? Emergency response management, so bringing together satellite collection, computer vision, to help optimize and respond to emergencies much more quickly. And then two that are particularly interesting for the link between, which is extreme weather prediction and the impact on agriculture. Certainly Europe has seen higher flooding, higher temperatures. In the United States, we certainly have seen higher temperatures as well. How do we ensure that doesn't lead to food shortages? What's the impact on how we irrigate, where we plant, how we plant? So really interesting work that was already happening in the United States between our Department of Agriculture, Department of Energy, and NOAA, and teaming on that with Europe. Beyond the models themselves, I think what's so exciting about this work is to say, we believe as democracies that you can do, for example, emergency response management without capturing every license plate, e.g., with protecting your citizens' privacy. So the, how we do data, can you do federated models where data stays where it is? What kind of data needs to be shared? How do we ensure we're protecting privacy? And different countries have different definitions of what privacy is. That's also the exciting part of that work. Well, so that, that actually was you know, my next question. Obviously, there, there's the upsides of AI, but then we also have to consider the risks. And so in these conversations with the EU, either, either through this forum or others, um, uh, what, what is the sort of uh, focus right now on aligning around how to address risks? And particularly you know, or, or earlier this summer, the Biden administration put out its executive order to address outbound investments and sort of concerns about U.S. investors supporting certain Chinese and, and other um, companies from rival countries that are in, you know, invested in and developing AI and other technologies. Are you sort of working and getting any closer with the EU on sort of aligning on, on those um, initiatives? So the president is very focused on the message that the promise and peril of AI is global and a commitment to our allies and partners to approach it in that way. So certainly, you know, after we worked with American companies on voluntary commitments, we felt we had a special obligation because so much of the innovation was in the U.S. The president convened those companies, worked on those voluntary commitments, and then we discussed those with key allies and partners as the foundation of potential norms in this space which we're now working within a G7 process with the largest economies. Certainly those discussions with the EU are ongoing as part of that as well. And you heard the president's remarks at the UN where he talked really about three things. First, he said, we're committed to ensuring that you know, we govern these models, they don't govern us. 
Second, that there is adequate trust and safety built in before they're deployed. And finally, that we're doing it in close consultation with allies and partners. And I think one thing that we really reflect on, a number of months ago, a, a female ambassador here in DC reached out and she said, you know, and women in tech is often, you know, women are, are often viewed as not being leaders in tech. How about if we convene a group of female ambassadors in DC come give a briefing on AI and, and let's have a discussion about it. And she did that. It was a group of female ambassadors from all over the world. And two of them, one from Latin America, one from Africa, you know, said something very poignantly a couple of times where they said, yes, we're all concerned about the risk, but our countries have gotten left behind in tech promise us we won't get left behind again. There's right. so much promise. They're like, you know, we need some of these models to help in rural parts of our country where there isn't access to medical care. So we're somebody with a camera or somebody with a device, more likely, equipped with the latest computer vision models can help identify the child aspects of particular diseases. They were focused on early onset blindness. Help us in that way. And I think that's very much a focus as we think about particularly the US-EU work because we are large economies with compute and data and actual abilities to work and build these initial algorithms, then take them to a broader group in the global south and further train them to help those other societies. So that's the ultimate goal in this space. Well, and I was just having a conversation about this on the podcast, actually. And um, the guests made the point that it may require wealthier nations to spend money, to invest, to, to help sort of countries that are, have less technological and economic advancement move, you know, move, move in, in step as AI comes, comes more into play. Is that something the U.S. is prepared to do? We're very committed to AI being a force for good for countries around the world. How that plays out with regard to whether it's capacity building, workforce training, algorithmic model training, we'll see but that's very much something we're aiming towards. And I think, you know, at a side event, the State Department conducted a side event at UNGA, and it was really cool to see the different work that's already, un that's already underway with a number of American companies, with a number of governments around the world, some of them funded by USAID and state, some of them just companies working in the markets they serve. So I think there's already a lot of interesting work underway in the space. And I know from a US government perspective, we're very committed to continuing to be a part of that and driving and contributing to it. Well, I can't, uh, we can't leave the stage without talking a bit about the cyber side of your job. It's cyber and emerging tech. Um, and I'm curious, again, thinking about this through the global lens, I know you've been very involved in leading the White House efforts around the response in Ukraine and, and assisting Ukraine with um, cyber support. I wonder what lessons sort of you've taken from that experience that you might apply globally as you look at how the U.S. helps other countries to, again, kind of keep pace with this ever-evolving technology, in this case, with cyber. We've learned so much um, in Ukraine. It's really been a shot in the arm for defenders. You know, I've had the privilege of working both offense and defense, and I've got to be honest, Offense is much easier. You need to find only one open door or window. Defense, you've got to be watching and defending them all. And I think the Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Russia's cyber attacks against Ukraine, and Ukraine's defense, Ukraine's lessons learned back in 2016, and then the work they've done till then, particularly on their energy grid, um, as well as really the work American companies did, the US government did to support the Ukrainians as they quickly moved data to the cloud so they had a measure of resilience as they quickly rolled out various forms of detection and monitoring. 
um, and really showed us what's possible. And I think we're looking at now applying some of those lessons. So you may have seen yesterday there was a Pacific Islands Forum at the White House. Right, yeah. Um, and one of the initiatives that was actually announced was taking a page out of, the, out of the work we did with Ukraine to move data to the cloud to add additional resilience, both for security and resilience, is the announcement of work like that that we're planning to do with the Pacific Islands Forum to add additional, to back up government and key critical services to the cloud and work with those governments to put that work in place. So that's an example of lessons we've learned. Well, and, you know, so just speaking of Asia quickly, if we sort of jet to, jet to that part of the world, you know, when it comes to support for Taiwan, you know, as, as tensions build with China, is there a cybersecurity dimension to the support and the, the conversations that you're having with your, Taiwan, your counterparts in Taiwan? Absolutely, from President Tsai on down, they are very focused on increasing the cybersecurity and digital resilience of Taiwan. Um, very focused on recognizing that China has a very capable um, both cyber attack and computer and cyber espionage program, and that that would certainly potentially be a part of any tensions in the area already are. So that is a close area of partnership and a real area of focus for Taiwan. What kind of support are you providing now, or, or maybe looking to provide Taiwan? The, the support we typically provide international partners around the world would be putting our best teams to hunt on their most sensitive networks to help identify any current intrusions and to help remediate and make those networks as strong as possible. It'll be best practices from lessons we learned. So for example, in our intelligence community, we rolled out a classified cloud. How does that work? What are the most secure ways to configure that for other nations? Intelligence communities might be another project. And then ongoing tabletops of people matter in cybersecurity, how quickly people can detect, how quickly and how coordinated they respond. Um, so certainly exercises that we do together as well in terms of helping them think about cybersecurity. Well, one last question for you with our clock uh, ticking down. And that's just, you know, on Halloween, you have a, a cybersecurity event at the White House bringing countries together, focused particularly on ransomware. And I know you're working on a statement now on how to address uh, ransomware attacks. What, what, is the, what can we expect from that guidance, you know, particularly when it comes to, you know, paying ransomware and, and responding to these sort of increasing cyber attacks that industry and governments face? Honestly, Stephen, when I came into this job, if you would have told me that the most disruptive cyber attacks we see are criminals, I wouldn't have expected that. And yet, when we look at the types of cyber attacks that shut down hospitals, that disrupt schools, um, it is often criminal attacks, and that's happening around the world. And there's an entire ecosystem of the tools they use, et cetera. So we're convening 47, 45 countries plus Interpol and the European Union. It's grown by 10 countries since last year. For two days of discussion, you're exactly right, kicking off on Halloween. What better, you know, what better drive for us what, to get together? What's and, scarier and than work. ransomware, exactly. exactly. And it's focused on things like, um, can we get to where we're sharing bad wallets, wallets that move illicit crypto that's paying ransoms? Certainly, we believe it's a financially driven issue, so we're thinking hard, both in the U.S. as well as internationally, what can we do to shut down ransoms, right? We know that ransoms drive it. For any individual company or entity, they may say, if I pay a ransom, I get out faster. But on the other hand, each one drives more attacks. So thinking thoughtfully about that, driving information sharing, and frankly, capacity building. So we did an Africa-focused you know, capacity building for a set of countries, 
and for others, helping them put in place rules for virtual asset service providers to enforce rules on um, crypto, know your customers. So a lot of work both from how do you disrupt the actors in infrastructure, how do you get stronger, and how do we coordinate because it's a global problem, we can only work together. Excellent. Well, we could keep talking, but we are out of time. So thank you for joining us. I hope you all will um, continue follow conversations like this on the Politico Tech Podcast. We'll have to have you back. Uh, but thank you all for being here. Thank you, Stephen. That's all for this week's Politico Tech. For more tech news, subscribe to our newsletters, Digital Future Daily and Morning Tech. Music in today's episode comes from the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior producer is Annie Reese. Our editors are Steve Heuser, Daniela Cheslow, and Louisa Savage. I'm Stephen Overly. See you back again on Monday.